equities are the building blocks of any successful portfolio. From satellite exposure to core allocations, advisors must understand the best way to wield equities if they want to succeed. Join Vetify on March 13th for the Equities Symposium and hear from industry experts and thought leaders. Register at ETFtrends.com. That's ETFtrends.com. ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. Some guests appearing on this program may also be financial sponsors of ETF Prime. The ETF Store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me will be Joanna Gallegos, co-founder of Bond Blocks, who burst onto the ETF scene about two years ago with a lineup of very precise high-yield bond ETFs. So they launched both sector-specific and single-credit rating high-yield bond ETFs. And since that time, they've continued to add to their lineup, including three new investment-grade corporate bond ETFs that just launched uh, a couple of weeks ago. So altogether, they're now up to 23 ETFs, about $2.5 billion in assets, again, in just two years. Pretty remarkable ETF success story. And Bond Blocks is unique because they are the first ETF issuer to focus solely on fixed income. They've been very clear that bond ETFs are what they do. That's who they want to be. And so Joanna and I uh, will discuss that positioning and their uh, journey over these past two years. We'll highlight several of those ETFs, and we'll also just talk broader fixed income markets. Also joining me this week will be Greg Tordo, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Goldman Sachs, who last October, they launched the Goldman Sachs Small Cap Core Equity ETF, ticker symbol GSC. Obviously, Greg manages that uh, ETF. It is actively managed. And from my perch, it does seem like small caps are an area that's getting a lot more attention recently. My sense is that some investors believe small caps could be primed to play uh, catch-up to large-cap stocks after trailing performance-wise over the past several years. Just as an example, I pulled these figures this morning, and admittedly, this is a uh, cherry-picked time frame, but the S&P 500 is up about 33% over the uh, trailing three years. The Russell 2000 is actually down 10%. And even if you go back five years or 10 years, it's really a similar story in terms of uh, underperformance from small caps. So I'll have Greg spotlight GSE, and then we will get into that small cap underperformance and find out how Greg uh, views the world here moving forward. Now, to start this week, I have on the line with me Roxana Islam, head of sector and industry research at Vetify. And speaking of the uh, outperformance from large cap stocks, obviously a lot of that has been driven by the uh, so-called Magnificent Seven, which are off to another great start this year, uh, by the way, at least overall, the beat goes on. But uh, Roxana has some thoughts on the potential concentration risk posed by these stocks, uh, right, if you own them in a broader uh, index. And she has a few other considerations for ETF investors as well. So we'll discuss that. And then we'll also spend a few minutes on spot Bitcoin and spot Ether ETFs just because I can't help myself. So let's chat with Roxana now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community one relationship at a time. 
An area that I've been talking a lot about is Bitcoin versus gold. So right now in the environment that we're in, um, a lot of investors are concerned over those rising rates. Roxana, great having you back on the podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. All right, so the Magnificent Seven. Uh, I actually haven't discussed this topic much recently. I, I think mostly because these stocks have been so well documented, right? Everyone is aware of what these have done. But I, I've got to tell you, I was looking the other day, those seven stocks, so Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, Amazon, Meta, Alphabet, and then uh, Tesla, which Tesla has fallen off a bit recently. But, but even then, if you look, those seven stocks account for nearly 30% of the holdings in the S&P 500. If you look at the uh, the Qs, the NASDAQ 100, we're talking about nearly 40% of the overall weighting. And so let's start with the, the obvious question, which is, does that type of concentration concern you? Or is that just part of the deal when you invest in uh, market cap weighted indices, right? You, you get the benefit on the way up and potentially have some greater exposure on the way down. How are you viewing this right now? Yeah, so, you know, I think this is, this is really interesting because the Magnificent Seven isn't anything new at all. Um, but I feel like all of a sudden I'm hearing about this several times a day. So it's just, it's this really weird phenomenon. And I think it's partly because, um, you know, large cap tech names, they've provided growth while feeling safe. Um, so I think that's even more important in the environment that we're in right now. And then plus you have all this new hype driven by AI. But, you know, as I said, these stocks have been in the S&P 500 for a while, and they've always been and been a large portion of it, you know, and that's been growing, but um, not that significantly, actually. And as you said, that's that's kind of the whole purpose of a, a market cap weighted index or ETF, right? So that amount has been growing. Um, and I think that is the part that is concerning a lot of people. But, you know, I think these are attractive names. They, they drive return, but obviously the issue is, you know, what if there is a downturn or some sort of tech bubble crash. So, you know, I think it's not really um, that concerning if your overall portfolio is fully diversified. But if you're investing in multiple ETFs and getting exposure to the same handful of stocks over and over again, then you're not really getting the diversification you think you are. And that's where the real issue is. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. Because when you talk about trying to build a diversified portfolio, one of the interesting aspects here from, I, I would say, an ETF standpoint is that it can be difficult for investors to get away from the Magnificent Seven. Like, even if they're making a uh, concerted effort to do so, these stocks can pop up everywhere in industry and, and sector and thematic ETFs. Do you want to talk a little bit more about that? Because obviously sector and thematic ETFs are a, uh, a strong area of expertise for you. That's right in your title. So how do you think about that challenge for investors? Yeah, so so it's interesting because if if you look at the holdings of a lot of these uh, thematic and industry ETFs, you know, despite what the name is, despite what the the sector is, if if they have something to do with disruptive tech or innovation, they're they're going to have um, these same stocks in their top holdings. So when you're looking at these disruptive tech innovation ETFs, you know, a lot of times you're in a new emerging industry, and the issue with um, being in a new emerging industry is that many of the companies are private and they're not public yet. So they're not eligible for inclusion in an index or, or an ETF. And the ones that are, um, are very small. So if we're looking at a market cap weighted ETF, which many of these are, then uh, many of these hold the same Magnificent Seven stocks in their top holdings since, you know, these stocks are, are typically involved in the infrastructure of all um these different disruptive technologies. So if you look at an electric vehicle ETF, um, like iDrive I is a big one, that has about uh, 15% exposure to these stocks. And then um, AI ETFs, I'm using chat, for example, that has about 30% exposure to these stocks. So, you know, I think the key here is just to be aware of, of what's inside your ETF and know what you're really investing in and how that fits um, in the overall context of your portfolio. In terms of say, the S&P 500 or the Qs, I, I think we're both in agreement that obviously the concentration can be a good thing if you've been on this ride for a while, right? So, I, I, again, I pulled some performance figures th this morning. The S&P 500 is up 21% over the past year, 33% over the trailing three years, nearly 100% 
over the trailing five years, so on and so forth. We could keep going back. But let's say investors are feeling like now is the time to take some risk off the table, that they, they feel like this run from the Magnificent Seven is a bit long in the tooth and uh, that they want to reduce exposure here. How, how are you thinking about alternatives? Like, I, I know equal-weighted ETFs are getting a lot more run these days. Would you point to those, or are there some other ETFs you might consider? Yeah, you know, I think besides market cap-weighted, a lot of investors like to look at uh, the equal-weighted ETF. So that's like RSP, which is um, the Invesco S&P 500 equal-weight ETF. So so with that, you diversify away some of that single stock risk, and it puts all your holdings in an equal playing field. It gives the chance for some of these other names to show some growth, um, especially now a lot of people are, I think, are kind of worried about um, the Magnificent Seven being overvalued. So, um, you know, potentially seeing um, some of those stock prices drop and giving some other stocks a chance to, to sort of shine. And there's also revenue-weighted ETFs, um, RWL, for example, that's the Invesco uh, S&P 500 revenue ETF. So, Holdings are, are weighted by revenue, so that's essentially weighing by performance. So it's it's a little bit different way to, to look at things. So, you know, good options out there. Um, but if you look at performance, I mean, SPY has actually done pretty well, and on an annual basis, it's outperformed equal weights and revenue weighted options over the past five years or so, except for 2020 and 2021. Um, so, you know, I think the best option for the majority of, of investors might just be to stick to SPY and just try not to over-allocate in the remainder of your portfolio. As I said, you know, make sure you're diversified with not just fixed income, but also not putting all your equities in, in tech or disruptive tech or innovation. Yeah. What about just moving down the cap spectrum a bit? Like you mentioned RSP, the uh, the equal weight S&P 500 ETF. If you look at the historical data on that, it looks very similar to a uh, mid-cap stock ETF. And so I'm wondering, you know, could you move down to mid-caps or at least add some exposure to mid-caps to diversify something like SPY or look down to small caps? I'm going to visit uh, later on here with a portfolio manager on a small cap ETF. Is that a place to look? Any thoughts just on moving down the cap spectrum? Yeah, I I think, you know, I'm I'm hearing a lot about uh, small caps this year. Um, Some people say it could be the year of of the small caps um, just because we have seen that significant outperformance in the in the larger cap stocks and they could potentially be overvalued. So it it could be time for some of these small caps to shine. And if not, um, you know, it's still a good way to diversify your portfolio. Before we move on here, because you know I have to ask you about crypto ETFs. You're not getting away from that uh, this week. Uh, our, our focus has been on investors who are concerned about the Magnificent Seven concentration. I'm curious, what about the other side? Because I'm sure there are some investors who, uh, you know, rightly or wrongly, they might prefer to back up the truck here, right? Because that has worked really well. And so I'm curious what you think about some of these ETFs that actually focus on Magnificent Seven stocks, something like the Round Hill Magnificent Seven ETF, ticker MAGS or or something like that. Yeah, I mean, so there's literally an ETF for everything. So, of course, (laughs) there are ETFs that follow the Magnificent Seven. So there's a couple um, that I know of. So there's there's MAGS and YMAG. And, you know, I think for the majority of investors, it's it's probably just easier to buy single stocks. But, you know, I also think when we have these – highly specialized ETFs, uh, you know, by the time they're approved and launched, a lot of the hype has already died down. So I think you're missing out on some of that um, initial price performance that that you would have gotten in the beginning. No, I think that's a fair point. And uh, again, if you're truly building a diversified portfolio, I don't think you necessarily want to load up the truck here. I I think that's pretty obvious. But uh, Roxana, let's switch gears here. and, And like I said, briefly talk crypto ETFs, because your last several uh, ETF Prime appearances have been focused on spot Bitcoin and spot Ether ETFs through no fault of your own, by the way, right? That, that's all on me. But I do like your perspective uh, on this space. And so I, I just want to get your very quick thoughts on two areas right now. Um, first, with the spot Bitcoin ETFs, since we last spoke, which was in early January, of course, these things are now out in the wild. And... I think it's been pretty interesting to watch uh, for, for a number of reasons. But just looking at flows, of course, we've had the outflows from the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC. We've seen pretty significant inflows 
into the uh, the other nine spot Bitcoin ETFs. Uh, the the iShares Bitcoin Trust is already over three billion. Fidelity's uh, Bitcoin ETF is approaching that. And I, I mentioned I think there's a really strong middle class developing here. If you look at Arc's Bitcoin ETF or, or Bitwise's Bitcoin ETF, even Invesco. Uh, it's not like all of the assets are accruing just to the uh, to the leader here. But w- what's been your assessment on these first three or four weeks of trading and, and the competition? Has anything surprised you at all? Anything stood out to you? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that most surprised me was um, was how Bitcoin prices reacted. Um, you know, I don't think I'm alone in this, but I really thought this would drive the market a little bit more. Um, but looking back on it, I, th- I think it does make sense. You know, a lot of that was probably already priced in because this whole approval process was just like really slow and painstaking. So I think by the time they were officially approved, um, everyone already thought it was going to happen. Plus, we had that that uh, Twitter or X fake out the day before where we thought they were approved, but then they weren't. Um, and then I think the selling pressure from from Grayscale was a little bit more than I imagined. Um, so, so it does make sense looking back on it, but it, w- it was still a little bit surprising to me to see um, the market not really react um, in prices. So, yeah, yeah, that that was that was uh, that was really what stood out to me. Yeah, I think GBTC goes without saying. It just is muddying the waters right now. I think it's tough to get a, a good read on its impact, both on the, the the price of Bitcoin, but also just on the competitive dynamics uh, w- within the spot Bitcoin ETFs themselves. A- anything just on the spot Bitcoin ETF competition that stood out to you, or has this gone? Like, let's say we put GBTC aside, has this gone about the way you were expecting with with iShares and Fidelity leading the way? Yeah, I, I thought it would be a, a little closer maybe. I know a lot of people, I, I was probably in the minority, but I know a lot of people saw BlackRock and Fidelity and figured they would take a lot of that share. But, you know, I thought there would be a little bit more competition, especially with the fee war and some of these big crypto players like ARK21 shares and Bitwise. But as you said, they're not that far behind. And I think it's it's actually pretty cool to see, you know, such similar products but then have not just two, but like four players really um, stand out. So, so it has been it has been a little bit interesting, but you know, I, I kind of expected those two to do a little bit better um, flows wise. Yeah, and what's interesting too is I feel like the marketing war around this is really just getting started. I don't think we fully have seen everything that these issuers are going to bring to bear in, in trying to uh, get the word out on these. So I, I think it'll be fun to watch moving forward. The, the other question I had for you, Roxana, was uh, around spot ether ETFs. So I, I think now that the SEC has approved spot Bitcoin ETFs, naturally everyone is looking towards potential spot Ether ETF approval. People can't help themselves, probably including me. And again, this is a topic you and I have discussed in the past that if you just take a step back and you consider that we have CME-traded Bitcoin futures, we have CME-traded Bitcoin futures ETFs, and then, of course, following the Grayscale Court victory, we now have spot Bitcoin ETFs. And so if you if you take all that and then look at the Ether side, we have CME-traded Ether futures. The SEC approved CME-traded Ether futures ETFs. That was back in, uh, what, early October. And so I think if you just use some very basic logic, that would seem to bode well for spot Ether ETF approval, which I believe the final deadline on the on the first wave of those comes up in May. Um do you still agree with that, or, or has anything changed in your thinking around this? Because I think that's where your head was at last we spoke, was that, yeah, that logic makes sense. Do, do you still agree with that? Yeah, I, I think that that logic still makes sense. Um, we saw the precedent be set um, already, so I think it's going to be the same logic. We have these Ether Futures ETFs, so there's, there's really no reason that they should deny um, Ether Spot ETFs. So, you know, I think we will see them um, this year. Uh, will there be as much excitement about them? Uh, probably not. So it, it probably won't be as well covered as the uh, spot Bitcoin race was. But, you know, I think I think it will happen. Do you think there's any um, sort of out here for the SEC, some sort of rationale they could come up with? I know some people want to point to whether or not they classify Ether as a, a security or not. I mean, I think everything we've seen thus far, they haven't fought the CFTC on the CFTC's classification of Ether as a non-security commodity. As I mentioned, they approved the Ether Futures ETFs, which you would think if they were going to argue against 
Ether um, being a commodity, or they want to make the case that Ether is a security, they would not have approved those ETFs. Um, I mean, is there anything that you could see happening here? Of course, the SEC can do whatever they want at the end of the day, but, you know, they they could face a lawsuit depending upon what the rationale for uh, for denying these would be. But is there anything that you can see that looks obvious to you on how they could somehow deny spot Ether ETFs? Yeah, I mean that's the only thing I'm seeing. I've 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 been hearing a lot about the classification issue. Um, that's maybe where it can get a little bit muddy. Oh, is it a security or is it a commodity? But you know, I still have my same opinion that you know if if they did approve if they approved the Ether futures ETFs, they should approve the um, the Ether spot uh, ETFs. Um, otherwise, they'd probably be opening themselves up to lawsuits, like we saw with Grayscale. Yeah, that's kind of where I'm at as well. I think that if they try to deny these, they could be facing another lawsuit over an APA, Administrative Procedure Act violation. But we shall see. Uh, programming note, I, I promise listeners, I probably won't be covering that story quite as much as I covered the spot Bitcoin ETF story. Uh, I don't know that I have the energy uh, to, to go through that again. But Roxana, we will have to leave it there. Great stuff as always. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks. That was Roxana Islam, Head of Sector and Industry Research at Vetify. Calling all financial advisors. Get ready to boost your practice, portfolios, and network at the Exchange Conference, happening in sunny Miami from February 11th to the 14th, 2024. At Exchange, you'll gain valuable insights to grow your practice and sharpen your investment acumen with the top investment experts. But that's not all. By attending, you can earn over 10 CE credits and join a network that goes beyond business. Join a community that's dedicated to your success. Learn more and register now at exchangeetf.com. I'm now joined by Joanna Gallegos, co-founder of Bond Blocks, who currently offers 23 ETFs, about $2.5 billion in assets. That's been done in just two years, by the way. They actually celebrate their two-year anniversary next week. And as I mentioned at the top, Bond Blocks is unique in that they are singularly focused on the fixed income space. Simply put, bond ETFs are what they do. And uh, Joanna is now on the line with me from New York. Joanna, it's a, a pleasure to finally connect. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you so much. Well, uh, first, again, congratulations on the uh, two-year anniversary and uh, really all of the success you've had thus far. Uh, I feel like you've clearly built out a very unique lineup of ETFs, which for listeners, that includes sector-specific high-yield bond ETFs, single-credit rating high-yield bond ETFs, Target duration U.S. Treasury bond ETFs. Uh, there's an emerging market bond ETF, and uh, now investment grade corporate bond ETFs, which just launched a, a couple of weeks ago. And we can certainly talk about those. But uh, Joanna, for people unfamiliar with the bond block story, let's take a uh, a quick step back. I'd love to have you offer some background on the founding of the firm and the problem you were attempting to solve. Like, why focus solely on fixed income? Yeah, so BombBlocks was founded in 2021, and BombBlocks is a team of experts across fixed income ETFs. Um, our team actually launched the very first ETFs across um, iShares, Vanguard, and State Street. So we have a very connected history to fixed income ETFs. We know the product set really, really well. And one thing that um, we observed and why we came together as a company is Obviously, around 2021, we, we anticipated that the bull market in fixed income would eventually change, um, that rates would eventually go up. And once that happened, um, there would be a big structural shift in fixed income, and there would probably be a lot of different allocation going into fixed income portfolios um, that hadn't happened in a while. So we were anticipating that, we didn't, and we didn't realize it would happen so quickly in 2022 and 2023 so it was really an amazing time. You mentioned our anniversary. We launched on the day of the Ukraine war. So it was, you know, and we launched, you know, seven high-yield credit funds on that day. So we were right on time in a lot of ways, and it was it was pretty pretty remarkable ride. The problem that we saw in thinking that the 
that fixed income markets would change was that we didn't see that clients had products that were updated for these markets or even for the markets we, we thought would be coming. So, for example, um, you know, there's only 16% of all ETFs are fixed income. And there wasn't as much choice for investors to really tailor their portfolios in fixed income. And as you can see in the last two years, um, that made a big difference. If you were able to control duration better in your portfolio or reduce exposures to different sectors or even take advantage of things that were going on in different ratings categories in fixed income, you would want to do that. But most of the products, and again, we're talking about people that actually launched the products I'm talking about, were broad in, in their exposures, and they could do better. And it, it didn't really reflect what was going on in fixed income portfolio management. So we wanted ETFs to better represent that. And that's what we're trying, that's what we will solve for advisors and fixed income investors. If you want to really position your portfolio to take advantage of, you know, our new world, which if you're old enough to remember, is not so new, it's pretty familiar, we have higher rates and more volatility and you should be able to tailor your exposure to that. I'm glad you mentioned the term tailor portfolios because uh, every time I see bond blocks referenced, I see it associated with the term precision fixed income. And I, I think you did a good job of laying out the, the macro case. I'd love to have you talk in a little more detail about why you think that precision fixed income has resonated with investors. Because, look, as you've mentioned, you've been at BlackRock, right? You were a senior product manager, managing director of strategic initiatives with iShares, obviously the largest ETF issuer in the world. You've been involved with developing and launching a number of ETFs. And so you know firsthand just how tough the ETF business is. But, you know, we look, bond blocks is clearly striking a chord with investors. So I'd love to have you just expand on why you think that is. I think it's resonating right now because you can see it. You know, it's, it's, it's something that markets have changed really fast, not only in the last two years for fixed income, but also in general for ETFs. You know, people go to ETFs so that they can get on exact exposures, and it's a really familiar thing for them to do in equities. You know, you can trade sector exposure. You can trade thematic exposure. Um, you know, as, we probably, as you probably are, are familiar in your, in your guests, um, are talk a lot about their products and, and your listeners understand like in, in equities, there's a million ways for you to just you know, get exact exposure and be able to respond to markets. In fixed income, that didn't exist because, as I mentioned before, a lot of the products hadn't been updated to be precise for things like duration and credit risk. Um, and there, there were so many events. If you kind of just go over 2023 and you look at like we all – entered 2023, many people thought that rates would be coming down, so they positioned their portfolios in January for that. And then in March, we had some bank failures, which is a sector-driven risk. Um, and then if you go forward, even into the third quarter, you know, in summertime, people were putting on duration because they thought maybe, you know, rates would be coming down at the end of the year. Um, and that duration trade, that long duration trade that people put on in the summer really started in, in treasuries, really started to fail, and there was a lot of losses through the fourth quarter. So even a year like 2023 tells you what we mean by precision. You should be able to trade along the curve. Um, like in our treasury products, we have eight um, treasury products that target duration specifically from one year all the way up to 20 years. And so you should be able to move along that journey as you see things changing or to express your view and your conviction. Um, we, we're, today we're seeing people coming out of our short-duration products, like one year and six months, and going into intermediate duration, um, like even just, even just inching out to two-year or five-year or ten-year. Um, and so I think that that's what precision means. It's being able to be responsive to these markets, and you need more tools that do that. You mentioned the term trade, and you said move along the curve. And when I look at the Bond Blocks ETF lineup, what's interesting is that all of your ETFs except for one are technically passive. The one that isn't is a uh, high-yield bond sector rotation ETF. But it, it, it's interesting because, yes, these are passive ETFs, but it, it, it seems like they're, they're used in a much more active manner. Uh, do, do you think that's a fair characterization of, of how your lineup is, uh, is used by investors? Um, I think 
So, I, again, I try to try to normalize it to what people have been doing in equities for a long time. I think that, you know, um, most investors need to familiarize themselves, again, with fixed income and the dynamics that um, underlie the market. But, yeah, they, we actually, their, their original origin story is they are built for institutional investors. They are built for investors that have a view. And they can take, you know, again, if you think of it as a more precise exposure or you think of it as active, that's fine. I think... The truth is, like, we would say that they're responsive um, and they are exposures. And so anybody that's building an ETF portfolio and is tilting into a sector exposure or a credit rating exposure or um, or even on the equity side, again, I'm trying to just connect the two, or you, you overweight technology if you want, um, it's, it is an active decision um, by using, you know, these exposures as building blocks to express your view. Um, the other thing to connect as is, is well is in fixed income, um, most management is active. Um, it is a different market. It does function differently. And so, you know, I think we're trying to also provide some of the, I guess, the, the secret sauce that um, professional managers use in fixed income broken down in our products. So, for example... Um, there's ways to improve performance versus benchmarks that all active managers use. And, and, and those tools and levers are things like um, credit and also um, credit ratings. And that was sort of the inspiration for our Triple B uh, corporate products. It's a very well-known space for managers to, you know, invest in Triple B corporate debt because it doesn't have any incremental default risk for the category, but it has higher yields and a higher total return potential, and it's sort of a simple thing to do. And why not give that exposure directly to advisors themselves so that they can sort of, you know, match some of the things that, like, you would call active, but are really just tools. Yeah, and for listeners, those triple uh, B rated corporate bond ETFs that just launched a couple of weeks ago, there, there are three of them. There are the, uh, the the one to five year corporate bond ETF ticker BBBS. There's a five to ten year version BBBI, and a uh, ten plus year version BBBL. Um, Joanna, uh, in, in terms of some other specific products, I show your top two ETFs by assets are uh, two that you were alluding to earlier. XHLF, which is the Bond Blocks Bloomberg six-month target duration U.S. Treasury ETF, and then X1, X-O-N-E, which is the uh, one-year target duration version. And really, if you look, all of the Bond Blocks target duration Treasury ETFs are doing pretty well in terms of investor interest. There are eight of those in, in all. But, you know, going back to what you were talking about on, on precise exposure and, you know, moving up and down the, the Treasury yield curve, I, I'd love to have you comment on those products specifically, just because, again, they are at the uh, the top of your lineup in terms of assets. Yeah, those those are that's a great um, product line. It has so many different use cases, and it helped investors a lot last year. So let's take the first one, the easy one, um, is just elevated yields, higher yields. I mean, we were at historic um, yields. Uh, in the markets right now. So last year, the way people used that product set was specifically to get exposure to the shortest duration, and you mentioned X half and X one, and so you saw, you know, with yields, you know, sometimes topping over five percent in that in that category of the curve, you know, people were using it to move their assets into something that's higher yielding with no risk. But then, um, because these are very specific duration, um, you can really manage your interest rate exposure there. What they do is we go, you know, as I mentioned, all the way from six months to 20 years. If you have a view and you want to move out in the curve because you think maybe the economy is improving or, or we're, at the peak, um, uh, we're at the peak for rates with the Fed and you think that rates are going to be coming down, you may want to add duration. So people have been moving out on them, you know, year by year we saw movement in um, the seven year in the fourth quarter. <laughs> um, and in um, in this in this last this first month or so we're seeing people move into the ten. And so they're they're really be they're really intended to be used interchangeably. We didn't launch one product, we launched eight products. Um, right now our view is that, you know, the economy is continuing to show resiliency and a lot of improving economic um, um, Factors like, you know, we have a strong GDP, we have strong consumer spending, and employment figures continue to, to surprise to the upside for everybody. So if there's a lot of resili- resiliency in the economy, 
you know, we, we think right now you may want to be overweight in the intermediate um, part of the curve in U.S. Treasuries because you may be able to capture, you know, returns that would um, uh, be positive if the Fed did move maybe in the middle of the year of 2024 towards, you know, uh, reducing rates. Like, that's possibly a place where you want to play in, in that space. So I think that product set has so many different use cases that it helped investors a lot last year just to do the simple trade of getting into higher yields, but I think it also has a lot of power as we kind of get to possibly peak rates and we see what's next for 2024 with rates. Yeah, I thought it was interesting last week just looking at uh, the Fed's actions and, and some of the comments there. I don't think it was a huge surprise, but it obviously looks like the Fed may not be quite as aggressive in cutting rates as perhaps yeah. some market participants expected, right? Any additional thoughts around that? I'm not big into market prognostications. You know, at the end of the day, no, nobody knows for sure. But any, any additional thoughts on the Fed? Yeah, we don't try to we don't try to to, to fight the Fed or, or make calls on on the Fed action either. But what we do, what we have been really positive on is that you know this structural change in rates that happens so fast is so supportive for all um, segments of fixed income, and in particular credit. So you have higher yields in the credit space, both in investment grade and in high yield. And so we actually recommend that you should increase your allocation to things in credit, like the triple B space I mentioned, because for no incremental default risk, you're getting higher yields and a higher total return um, uh, potential. And single B in high yield, and even triple C um, in high yield. You know, last year, high yield was the best performing segment in fixed income. And the reason it was, was despite volatility, it was supported by really high um, coupons. And so that's, that's how bonds work. It's just we haven't been able to see that for a couple decades because rates were at zero and you didn't have the coupons supporting, you know, the volatility that was in the market. So we're really, as we said, put a positive that, you know, as we get to the end of this cycle, and, you, you know, the resiliency continues, and the fundamentals of these companies are weathering um, a lot of these increased rates well, that those spaces are things that you should be shifting some allocation to. Um, we we don't think, uh, in our view, that the Fed is, is going to be um, uh, moving on rates very soon, um, definitely not within the first half of the year. But eventually, they may, they may, and um, we think that the fundamentals of the companies are still going to support um, the ability for those those coupons to stay high and for volatility to be relatively low, um, given other credit cycles. In terms of shifting um, an allocation towards credit, and let's go further down the uh, the credit spectrum. Let, let's just assume junk here. Can you talk more about credit risk? Because to your point, you, you look at the economy. Things look pretty good overall. As you noted, yields are still very attractive in that space. But obviously there's a camp of investors who I think believes a recession could be on the horizon or at least a, a meaningful slowdown. So, so how do you think about credit risk right now in a portfolio? And I'll, I'll add to that. I know some advisors and some investors will look at the junk bond space and view it much more uh, like, like an equity type mm-hmm. risk. Is that how you view it? Well, I think we, we do think that, you know, it's different in this credit cycle than it has been in others. There's, we don't see any concentration um, risk of over-issuance in any industry, for example. Um, we, we, there's the Brazilian economy. We think that a lot of these companies were refinanced their debt, and so their debt is really manageable. They refinanced it pre-pandemic um, or during the pandemic. So they have, they have an ability to weather the storm. Um, so that, that's, that's our view. Um, the other thing is that the default rates in these categories, if you go into high yield in double B, single B, and triple C, aren't meaningfully ticking up than their normal averages, um, which sort of reflects what I said before. So there, there is a reason to, to consider that, um, that these spaces, especially maybe um, single B, might be a way for you to not – it's not a something, – it's something you want to tilt your portfolio to, not necessarily invest completely as a core. Um, we may want to add some extra exposure there um, in, in, in sort of uh, lower-rated credit, uh, for sure, because you could capture higher income and, and total return because the market's so resilient. Um, the other thing is if, if that isn't appealing to you, that's where we kind of go back to that triple B space that we just launched in investment grade, and that, you know, 
where I think people are taking their next steps is like I'm in treasuries. It has no risk and has high yields right now. We recommend that people consider credit and move into credit given, as I keep mentioning, the resiliency of the economy and, and what we keep seeing in terms of strength, earnings, and everything that's coming out. But what people would maybe think to do is to go to high-quality credit. And so high-quality credit is generally, you know, you would go to investment grade. There's just a sweet spot investment grade that we want to point out to people, and that's the triple Bs. Um, it's, it's the space where, you know, again, if we're not taking on any additional risk because you don't want a lot of credit risk um, versus high yield, you can, you can get a, a pickup of um, ink total return potential and also yield. So I think there's just so many interesting ways, given the backtrack of fundamental strength across companies right now, that you could be investing in credit. And that's why we cut it up the way we did. You could do ratings. You could do certain sectors. You could do um, investment grade, or you can do high yield. And we think that's the important thing to take away is, you know, understanding that you have a lot of choice and ability to tilt and, and take on some exposure so you don't miss out on, um, on these markets. Joanna, just about a minute left here in terms of slicing and dicing the uh, the fixed income space. I know you're not going to give me a specific answer here, but I have to ask you, um, can you talk at all about what bond blocks might be uh, cooking up for future ETF launches? Or are we just going to have to wait and, uh, and be surprised? Well, there's one thing I can definitely tell you. We have a product registered right now, um, so that's, that's public. I mean, we're going to keep going into some of the underserved parts of fixed income and improving products that are um, out there and updating spaces that are out there, which is the vague answer that, you know, that I would give you. But, you know, we're, we're looking at, you know, spaces and income. We have a, um, as you mentioned, we have an active fund. Um, we were working with some sub-advisors at Macquarie Asset Management, and now we're working with a sub-advisor at um, Income Research and Management to deliver a really compelling after-tax um, product uh, in the uni space. And so, you know, I think that you'll see more um, more asset classes and more sectors and fixed income from us. Um, we're really excited about completing our credit space with now having investment grade and the treasury suite. Um, so, you know, more to come in just every every kind of space that we think has been under, underserved. And, and remember, like, it was a little bit of a dearth of product development and fixed income for about 10 or 15 years, so we have a lot to do. Well, Joanna, again, so glad we could finally connect. Really enjoyed the uh, the conversation. Thank you for joining me. Thanks so much, Nate. That was Joanna Gallegos, co-founder of BondBlocks. Growth and innovation, two words that best describe the ETF industry. However, rapid growth and innovation creates a critical need for financial advisors and industry practitioners, education. Enter the ETF Institute the first and only independent organization providing industry professionals and financial advisors with certification, education, and training on ETFs. Learn more about the Certified ETF Advisor designation by visiting CETF.org. Guest this week, certainly not least, is Greg Tordo, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Goldman Sachs, who currently offers 39 ETFs, over $33 billion in assets. That includes the Goldman Sachs Small Cap Core Equity ETF, ticker GSC, which just launched in October and is, in fact, co-managed by Greg, who is now on the line with me from New York. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Nate. All right, so my understanding is that uh, you've been involved with a small and mid-cap equity universe going on, what, 30 years now. And so before we get into the ETF, I would love to hear more about uh, sort of your career arc, how you first got started in this space, and then perhaps take us up to your uh, current role at Goldman Sachs. Yeah, it would be, it would be a two-hour podcast if I did that, <laughs> so I'll make it brief. Um, you know, I started, you know, back back in the uh, mid-90s, uh, Bankers Trust, and Back then, you know, we were, you know, embarking on what I would call the first of a, a number of really, really large IPO, you know, kind of explosions in the, in the world. And, 
as there was too many IPOs for the existing analyst team to cover, uh, I got drafted to kind of co- help cover and go to a lot of road shows and gain gain a lot of weight by eating rubber chicken uh, by seeing a lot of these small cap tech companies that came public in the in the mid '90s and. I fell in love with how inefficient some of these small cap companies were, you know, in terms of just you were able to model them the way you wanted to and you were able to, uh, you know, kind of get a, get a chance to create a relationship with the management team and really do that due diligence that kind of gets the passion flowing for stock pickers. And over the course of my career, I've transitioned from, you know, kind of being a technology analyst to, to more of a portfolio manager team leader and now I'm hoping to you know kind of not just manage the portfolios but teach you know men- mentor coach the folks around me to kind of have that same passion and productivity and hopefully success that I've had earlier on in my career. Yeah, so as I mentioned you are now co-portfolio manager on the Goldman Sachs Small Cap Core Equity ETF again ticker GSC. What why don't you first take us through the uh, high level process here in terms of how you're approaching stock selection and just the active management framework overall. And then we can uh, get into discussing the small cap universe itself. Yeah, so the, 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 the GSC product itself is a, is a very similar strategy that my co-portfolio manager, Rob Crystal and I have been running for about three years uh, for you know, offshore, an offshore fund and for private wealth clients here at, here at Goldman Sachs Asset Management. It's a bottoms-up approach uh, that's you know, one stock at a time that we use to kind of find the best ideas from our growth and our value teams within small cap. We have a dedicated small cap team for research, which we think is a significant competitive advantage for us. And most of the companies we own are, are you know, in this GSC ETF have been names we've owned for at least a, a little bit of time before they get into GSC. They're, they're almost, uh, you know, kind of moving towards the high conviction uh, approach as we get there because sometimes you'll buy you'll buy a name a little bit early, um, you know, on either the growth or value side, whether, whether you think that there's an opportunity created one way or the other. And so Rob and I, you know, kind of go through the names and sort of the highest conviction ideas of the analysts that we have that are out there. And we build the portfolio trying to keep it under 100 stocks and trying to keep it, you know, not – not sector neutral because I think that that kind of avoids you know the creativity that we we try to have where conviction can get expressed. Like for example, we like a lot of consumer names, we like a lot of industrials names, and we like a lot of tech names. And so we think that if you know if, we, if that's where the the ideas are coming and they're good ideas that that Rob and I have vetted, then we'll have overweights in those sectors. And you know I think that. What we try to do is make sure that, you know, kind of the, the research process is followed. You know, we spend time with management. We, you know, do scenario analysis in terms of, you know, bull, bear, and base in terms of what could happen. But also, we like to think about the art of the possible because many of these companies are, you know, on the cusp of something, you know, what we think is pretty exciting. You know, they're, they're breaking into a new market. They're, they're challenging a much larger cap competitor. So we don't want to let, you know, kind of, a, you know, a very narrow view of price targets or, you know, kind of having a having a really kind of highly constrictive sell discipline. So we also try to let our winners run, which is, you know, while you'll see some of the names at the top of the portfolio being a bit bigger, uh, you know, our top 10 being a bit bigger than, say, the, 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 the 10 names after that. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was actually a question I had for you was, was around how you weight holdings in the portfolio. You mentioned uh, potential overweights to sectors, but if I look right now, I see Federal Signals, your top holding at 2.3%, and then Onto Innovation at, at 2.1%. Do, do you want to talk a little bit more about how you determine those weightings? Yeah, so I think, you know, po- both of them kind of fall into the winner's run category, but I think that Federal Signals is a little bit more of a, of a unique story. You know, it's a company uh, run by Jennifer Sherman, what, what we think of as an incredibly, you know, talented CEO in terms of, you know, kind of running the company, but not only just running it for, for you know, for, for what it is today, but running it for the future. They're, you know, they're based in, in, the, in the center of Illinois, and they, you know, I, I actually have known this company for a long time. They, they used to make garbage trucks and fire trucks, and now it's more along the lines of, you know, kind of safety equipment, uh, environmental equipment. Think about you know kind of the things that you know kind of drain the uh, the uh, you know the sewer pipes in the cities, and then street sweepers. And through you know kind of what we think are are, are unique organic uh, inorganic opportunities to buy up small mom and pops, they've been been able to kind of embark on a very very high return high return on invested capital 
approach to, to grow this company significantly faster than the category is has been growing for, for, for quite some time. You know, I think we, we you know, we, we, uh, we understand and, and kind of operate with the fact that we think that um, uh, municipal budgets are pretty strong. So we think that the, you know, the people who are spending money on these things will have, will have the ability to continue to spend money. And I think that when we look at sort of a, a company that's going to grow their top line, you know, high single digits, mid to high single digits, that's, you know, this is a zero growth category or a very, very low growth category. So these are guys that are taking share um, and really selling into markets where they're kind of creating opportunities for themselves as opposed to as opposed to waiting for something to wear out and then, you know, kind of calling on a, you know, calling on the DPW in your town to say, hey, do you need a new street sweeper? So it's a it's a it's a total approach, manufacturing, sales, you know, marketing, and also kind of aligning themselves very closely with the you know with the municipal needs of of many of the customer bases that they have out there in the in the middle of the country. Greg, as you just walked through the detail of a company like that on the fly, it got me thinking. Uh, about what your watch list process looks like, because obviously the small cap universe is large. There are a lot of companies here, but I- I'm guessing you're clearly paying attention to uh, to companies outside of just the ones you own in a uh, in the GSE portfolio. Can you talk about that process at all, and and how a company is ultimately elevated to portfolio status? You know, Nate, that's a great question. I wish more people asked about it because I do think it's a key differentiator for us. You know, you know, I think that. You know what we in, we you know kind of entrust our team with is not just you know kind of knowing everything about you know the companies that are in the portfolio, but having four or five companies ready to go that the analysts and the portfolio managers have agreed upon that are like you know this is the next one that's going to go into the portfolio. So doing the same amount of work, meeting with the management team, you know, kind of dealing with the quarterly results, you know, making sure that you know the kind of some of the secondary and tertiary research processes are out there, whether it's, you know, kind of alternative data or, you know, just doing some, doing some, you know, kind of interviews with people in the space just to understand what's going on. So there's as much of a, of an understanding and a knowledge base about a company that we don't have in the portfolio that we do. So in the small cap space, you find, you know, and I, I laugh about this stuff, but things happen. You know, companies get taken out, and and sometimes, you know, on a, that's a good thing. But sometimes bad things happen. Some, somebody can miss a quarter, and the thesis you have had or have been holding on to could be broken. And and if well, we don't really want to kind of reorient or shift the thesis to the right, we want to make sure that if our original thesis is broken and we can't reconstruct it, then we'll move on. And I think that those watch list names, especially having them and discussing them at our at our at our meetings with our analysts, really allow us to kind of operate quickly and not, you know, kind of miss that opportunity cost that happens in the small cap space because, you know, these companies move very, very quickly when 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 the when the consensus changes. Greg, more broadly speaking, uh, an advisor or investor, they have a decision to make when allocating to uh, small caps. They can either go active or they can go index-based. Um, can you speak to the potential value of active management here? Because, again, this is, I, I know, somewhat of a cliche question, but it is a key decision point uh, investors have to make. It's why I do what I do. Um, you know, I do think that there's a significant amount of inefficiency in the small cap space, but I do think that there's you know, kind of nuances to that that you know you can't capture at the top of the indexes and i and i think that you know one 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 interesting area to that is is financials right and i think that we've been able to do quite well as an active manager and many of our peers done the same because they weren't um beaten up in the you know kind of march of last year during the silicon valley bank crisis of 2023 and, and similarly towards what's been happening more more recently you know kind of with new york community bank and, and i think that you know, when you kind of think about that and you kind of broaden it out to other sectors, you know, biotech, for example, software, places where, you know, you can make some really, really big mistakes. But if it's a cap-weighted name and it's a $6 billion company, it's one of the biggest names in the benchmark, the benchmark's going to go down. And if you miss, and if you're as a portfolio manager are not there, or you own something that's significantly better than that company, you can, you know, you can make some, you can make some significant return for that client in that portfolio just by that selectivity of, of your process. You know, we also see a lot of, you know, kind of, and I think it's starting to kind of get eked, eked out now. But you know, over the last couple of years, SPACs, for example, 
were a very large portion, uh, not very large, but large enough portion of the of the of the Russell 2000 benchmark, which we use. And you know, that's you know, that was a place, and thankfully that we did not go to tread. And you know, kind of avoiding that was also a a big portion of the kind of the return we were able to to kind of deliver to the clients because. You know that was a you know kind of an open ended hole that you know people just kept on shoving money into and and thankfully not being there helped that. There's other things too. I, you know I think that I think that you have you know sectors that you know we just we just don't spend a lot of time in. You know like mortgage REITs and financials. That's you know I don't think that that's an area that you want to spend a lot of time in. Utilities is an area we don't we don't spend a lot of time in just because I don't think that there's a lot of alpha there. So not being you know kind of not being you know kind of top down driven. Allows us to focus on where the opportunities are, but also you know avoid, you know, hopefully avoid, you know a significant amount of potholes that that come on, that come at you along the way. Yeah, and just to hone in on this point, when you talk about potholes, I think this is what you're circling around. One of the popular refrains I keep hearing about small cap stocks overall is the number of quote unquote zombie companies in the broader indices, right? These companies that might be over leveraged, they're not generating enough cash. Is that a real concern right now in the small cap space? You know, I do think that you know. I think that there are you know parts of the small cap space that are you know that are over leveraged. I think you had you know kind of a, a big a big chunk of that get get beaten up last year. You know, when interest rates rose so quickly, and you had a you know many companies in the small cap space have floating rate debt, for example. You know, thankfully, you know through an active bottoms up process, you avoid a lot of that, and you kind of a, you kind of can can wean that out. Um, but you can't do that if you're buying the benchmark, you're buying the index. And, and I do think that there are, you know, zombie companies out there that are just kind of floating around that don't have, um, that don't have the prospects that you'd expect them to be. Yeah, I expect them to as public companies. And, you know, I think that that's something that, you know, as, as you've done this or as I've done this for as long as I've have, it's, um, it's been interesting to see, you know, kind of those, you know, kind of when that reckoning comes. And hopefully, you know, kind of avoiding it every time it does. Just a few minutes left here. Uh, if I look at performance, and I, I noted this at the top of the podcast, let me just briefly walk through this. So if you look at the Russell 2000 versus the S&P 500 on a trailing one year, three year, five year, 10 year, whatever, it's yeah. not pretty. So as an example, I use the uh, trailing three year returns where the S&P 500 is up about 33% and small caps are actually down 10%. And I, I, I guess on the note of popular refrains, I keep hearing that because of this performance disparity, and, and also we can certainly work in valuations if you want to touch on those, small caps are primed to play catch-up to large caps, that they're going to start closing that performance gap. Do you agree with that? And if so, like, what would be some potential catalysts here? Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I do. <laughs> I do think that, that, that the small caps are primed to play catch-up. And I do think valuation is one of those catalysts. Uh, you know, I think it's we've seen a you know we've seen a, a an unprecedented period um, where not just concentration in the mega caps, but also just the the absolute you know kind of apathy towards small caps has has led to a it's it's you know I'd have to say it's almost a you know, kind of a decade um, since we've seen anything like this in terms of, you know, kind of the, the valuation gap between, you know, large caps and small caps. And I, and I do think that when you kind of look at some of the things that, you know, can be catalytic, valuation can be a catalyst. It can't be a catalyst on its own. Cheapness by itself is not enough to get people excited. What we think will be, you know, kind of will join this, this, um, you know, kind of the the relative, you know, cheapness of the small cap asset classes. You know, a couple of fundamental things that we've seen, you know, kind of more more specifically pick up. M and A is really starting to get very, very active in the small cap space. Um, we've seen it happen in healthcare. We've seen it happen in a couple of other sectors like consumer. So we do think that that gets people, those animal spirits, get people excited about the small cap space because as valuations got inexpensive, you've seen some of the larger players come in strategically and and uh, also the private equity space. Secondarily, I think that you know, the IPO market, which has been dead for almost two years, and 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 rightly so, I think 2021 was a was a really really tough year because I think they the the, uh, the the capital markets folks put out a lot of product that that really didn't need to be out there. 
you're starting to see some better product that's coming out, and I think you'll see that you know kind of trickle out over the first quarter, and then as you get into the second quarter, you're going to see a lot of more mature companies, like we saw in 2013 after the global financial crisis, and in 2018 after another shakeout, and like so in 2020 after COVID. You know, I think you're, you you see these kind of these pauses that refresh the IPO market. And I think you're going to see some pretty high quality, and and I think finally, you know, you know, I do think that the the U.S. economy. See all these things, you know, it's too strong, right? You know, I think people are worried that the U.S. economy is too strong. I don't think it's too strong, but I think it's strong enough to really support, you know, what we think is going to be a really, really big earnings recovery for the small cap space. It's been two years since we've seen that. You know, kind of Powell being reappointed in, in November 21 was like the downside to the earnings cycle. We're starting to see the upside now and positive revisions. So I think those three things, along with cheapness, are, are really, you know, strong catalysts for small cap to outperform this year. Well, Greg, really enjoyed hearing your uh, perspective this week. Just just excellent insight into the small cap universe. Best of luck to you on uh, GSC moving forward. Thank you for joining me this week. Thank you, Nate. I really appreciate the opportunity. That was Greg Tordo, Managing Director and Portfolio Manager at Goldman Sachs. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. I want to thank one of our sponsors, Direction. If you would like to learn more about the Direction ETFs, you can visit Direction.com. Next week, I will be live from Exchange down in Miami. So if you're attending that conference, you can come watch a live recording of ETF Prime on Tuesday. If you're not, don't worry. That recording will be available everywhere as usual. And I have an excellent panel of uh, guests lined up. You definitely won't want to miss this. Until then, have a great week, everyone. 